You're listening to The Real Wealth Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. You may recall that back in 2012, Warren Buffett was being interviewed on CNBC, and he said that if he could figure out how to manage them, he would buy a few hundred thousand single-family homes. Well, a few companies figured out how to do that. I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. I am so honored to be interviewing Dallas Tanner on The Real Wealth Show today. He is president and CEO of Invitation Homes, and he's also a member of the company's board of directors. Mr. Tanner has 20 years experience establishing real estate platforms, and as a founder of Invitation Homes, he's been at the forefront of creating the single-family rental industry. Dallas, welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Hi, thanks for having me. Boy, what a time to be in real estate, specifically single-family homes. And uh, what are you seeing out there? What kind of changes have you seen over the past year and maybe even the last few months? Well, it's remarkable, you know, the supply and de demand fundamentals that are going on right now and what people are consistently hearing kind of over headlines is that things are getting more expensive. Uh, there's an inavailability of new housing supply in, in most markets across the U.S., including those that you wouldn't typically expect. Um, and affordability is going to continue to be a real story, I think, as you start to look at what's happening with inflation coming into things, not just housing, but uh, cost of goods sold and things that are going in to develop that housing. Um, and then mortgage rates. I think there'll be a whole story around you know, do rates stay as low as they've been for the last five, six years, or do we start to see some creep? All of that's going to, you know, equate to a, um, a fundamental housing story that where things are going to be more expensive probably in all likelihood than they were, say, a year or two ago. Yeah, we're absolutely seeing that. Um, now, I'm sure you know that investors take a lot of flack for gobbling up the homes that are out there. Um, and, and certainly uh, you guys have, have heard that story before, but you still have a fairly low percentage of overall rental homes, right? Do you, do you know the percentage of um, institutional owners at this point? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I would say kind of a couple of fundamental points. First of all, 47 million households in the U.S. lease something in some way, shape, or form. Of that 47 million, roughly 16 million are single-family homes that are for lease, that are part of the normal marketplace. And in that category, if you take our company and all the other professional companies that do it, we have about, say, 300, 350,000 homes that are professionally managed out of the 16 million. So it represents really 2% of the total population of for-rent single-family homes, which means 98% are owned by you know, small investors, mom and pop landlords, et cetera. And, and so that narrative, while it sells a lot of newspapers, isn't really the facts on the ground. Um, and we feel like we're part of the solution, quite frankly, to bring you know, quality, affordable housing to the table and also provide services and to be able to lower the costs over scale uh, that, quite frankly, mom and pop landlords can't provide uh, when you have one or maybe two properties. So um, that narrative has been a little interesting. And then, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, the story around buying homes and continually trying to grow our business, there'll be 6 million transactions in the next 12 months in the U.S. You know these stats. But you know, as you start to think about that, again, like professional institutional landlords that want to buy and add to the portfolio, I can't imagine it's more than 30,000 homes in a given year. So um, 
it's really an interesting narrative that's kind of evolved, but we certainly were part of the groups that were buying a lot of homes coming off of um, 2008 and nine. And I think that also helped stabilize pricing. So it's just, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a constant thing that we spend a lot of time on both educating and also making people understand where we fit into that housing spectrum. Um, and we're a very small part of a really large ecosystem and we'll continue to do our part. And we're going to look for ways to grow. Yeah. So let's talk about that. How do you, how do you see your company growing? Well, we're, we, we have the benefit of scale, right? Like you mentioned, I mean, we have 81,000 homes across 16 markets, um, largely parts of the country where you're seeing more household formation. We call ourselves like kind of the smile markets, West coast, Southwest, Southeast, um, you know, our average market footprint today averages at least 5,000 homes in one of those MSAs. And we have markets as big as Atlanta, where we have 12, 13,000 homes and markets like Dallas, where we're just at 2,500 homes. And so I think we want to, as a business, we want to continue to try to drive scale in these markets because we can offer better services at a better long-term cost structure to the resident. Um, we can drive down the costs because of our economies of scale in terms of how we, you know, fit and finish a home, offer um, upgraded standards within a home, whether it's kitchens, countertops, master bathrooms, whatever. And the, the law of large numbers really helps us create a better product at a more affordable price. And so I, I think we'll continue to try to drive an investment thesis around how do we get more scale in these markets that we view as perpetual markets that are here for a long time. Um, and quite frankly, if you look at what kind of, you know, our natural kind of U.S., not not immigration, but where net migration is going, the population's moving a foot south every day, like on average. And so people are chasing warmer <laughs> weather. It's a funny statistic. But I have John never Burns, heard that. <laughs> John Burns, who's like one of the leading housing economists, look at like the median you know population of where it is, and it continues to move a foot south every day. So you know, wow. in theory, every every year we're moving 365 feet further south on a median basis which is a really interesting stat. It makes sense, right? It lines up with warmer weather markets, um, states that are maybe a little bit more pro-business. Generally speaking, it's easier to start businesses in some of these markets. Um, there's a lot of opportunity, a lot of corporate relocation that are moving to some of these markets. So there's going to be a lot of really good supply and demand fundamentals in that kind of smile market category we're talking about. Yeah, you're in 16 markets. Is that right? 16 markets, right, today. 16, okay. And are you starting to sell out of certain markets or are you just uh, acquiring more? Not programmatically. I mean, we always look at our portfolio and we'll make decisions around homes. And I would say like on any given year, we sell somewhere between 800 and 1,500 homes in our portfolio. We sell those 95% of the time back into the end user market. So those go to homeowners. Um, and then- we have done some things like we, we did a merger in 2017 where we took on a 30,000 homes. That's what took us from 50 to almost 80,000. And for example, Nashville, there were a lot of homes in that portfolio that were better suited for end users than maybe uh, a portfolio like we would construct. And so we ended up selling back 800 homes back into the marketplace in Nashville. Wow. And so today we don't have exposure in Nashville on our portfolio on our balance sheet, but it's a market we really love. So we would definitely look for opportunities to grow there if the present, if the situation presented itself. So I, I think you, your company was um, founded, when was that? Was it 2008? Uh, well, I started buying single family rental in a predecessor company 
that we owned in 2008. We partnered with Blackstone to form Invitation Homes in 2012. Okay, in 2012. So it was a pretty competitive market then. How would you compare today to 2012 in terms of acquisition? It's 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 super competitive. It's more so competitive today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and that's in part because of a number of reasons. One, even when we had historically low interest rates, you know, coming off the housing crisis, we haven't seen prolonged rates that are this low for this long, which has fueled a lot of consistent activity in home buying and selling for, say, the last five, six, seven, eight years. You, you, so the one thing that's different right now with as competitive as it is versus how it was in 08 is lending standards are much tougher, and, and rightfully so. Mm-hmm. I think Dodd-Frank did some things that were right back, you know, coming off the last crisis. There, you know, you can't go qualify for a mortgage with, you know, a first and a second and only 3% down. Like those days don't exist, um, which, which is good. And you have homeowners today, while prices have continued to get high, you have a lot more equity in your home uh, for most homeowners. So it's a different scenario than played out in 2008. And as you think about that demand that you're talking about, what's happened is you have 65 million people between the ages of 22 and 36, that kind of millennial cohort that's coming you know, into call it household formations ages. And if you look at our business, for example, our average resident today is about 39 years old and has a combined household income of roughly $115,000. And that, so that's somebody that can afford an $1,800, $1,900 rent. And a lot of that same kind of category of people, almost two thirds of that category are choosing to own versus lease. So there, there's room for both. The challenge is, is, Builders are not delivering at the pace and the scale for the last eight or 10 years that normal household formation is required. We need somewhere around a million and a half units a year of new household, uh, sorry, new, I'm sorry, new housing starts and formations. And for you know seven or eight years, really until this year, we've been somewhere between 800,000 and a million to a year. So you could say in a hot market, we're two or 3 million units underserved when you look at single family and multifamily. That's a pretty compelling statistic. And so, you know, when rates are low and interest in housing is as peak as it is right now, you're going to have some housing shortages if you don't have that kind of supply. Yeah. And as, uh, as demand increases, but supply isn't there, rents will likely go up and, and so will home prices. Unfortunately, that is often, again, blamed on investors like you and, and me when it, it isn't really our fault. It's the the fact that there are so many regulations and uh, it's been difficult. It's been very, very difficult to to bring anything new to market. Yeah. So are, are you building to rent? Is your company looking into that or doing that? We haven't taken on um, any development risk per se as a company. We certainly have bought homes from a number of builder partners around the country. And that mm-hmm. is part of our strategy is to be part of new communities as they're rolling out. And we found really, you know, quite a bit of success in partnering with a lot of well-known public and also private builders to to find um, opportunities to bring in a for lease product in many neighborhoods where the majority of it will be um, for ownership. And I think to your point, it's an important thing to remember. You know, two thirds of the homes that at least that probably sell every year in the resale marketplace are sold to people that are going to live in them and and that own them. It's still, you know, somewhere around a third, and that's pretty consistent with what, you know, the numbers are in our country. About two thirds of the country owns something, and about a third lease. It's mm-hmm. been that way for a long, long time. So, um, 
Availability of product is, is, is tricky. I think there is a lot of ingenuity that's coming around with people that are trying to build, you know, purpose-built uh, for lease communities that have maybe some amenities and some things that you otherwise may never have access to. By the way, taking a step back, there are markets, like I mentioned before, Atlanta, where most HOAs have a pool and a tennis club, um, mm -hmm. two tennis courts and a pool. You don't see that in markets like Phoenix or Las Vegas in, in, in single-family kind of detached neighborhoods. So there are some markets where amenity-based kind of, you know, offerings are part standardized in a normal community. And people have been, you know, benefiting from that from a for-lease perspective for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Has your uh, buy box changed at all in terms of, you know, what, what you think you want to be owning and what, uh, what people are wanting? I mean, are you, are you still going after the same type of product? We've been pretty disciplined. I mean, our, our typical home is kind of a three-bedroom, two-bath, you know, 1,500 to 2,500 square foot home. Um, and we tend to buy probably, if you looked at us relative to our peers, we probably buy a little bit more expensive home than most of our peers, a little bit closer in, a little bit more infill. Um, we're not afraid of, of having, you know, a nicer product that would lend itself, you know, maybe on a yield perspective, someone may look at that and go, God, I can get better yields further out because I can buy the host cheaper. But, you know, on a risk-adjusted basis, we really like our thesis of being more infill. You get people that are choosing your home for a very specific reason. They want to be there for a longer period of time. You can drive, you know, a better residential experience for the customer. And so our strategy really hasn't swayed all that much over the years. We've, we've continued to focus on infill product, great locations, close to major transportation corridors, and perhaps most importantly, making sure that we're buying homes that give families and parents, you know, school choices of, of where to go to school. I think schools are a big driver with our demographic. Yeah, it's really funny that you say that because I, I remember when you guys kind of entered into the arena where many of us had been playing for a long time and we thought we were the experts that you guys didn't know what you were doing coming from Wall Street, buying these homes that didn't appear to cash flow. So looking back, I mean, you know, they, they weren't necessarily high cash flow, but have they become that over the years or is that not really the game? I mean, you know, what's the ultimate objective? Well, you pointed out a really funny point. Like, and remember, we, we, we certainly had partners that were Wall Street partners, but the, the people building these businesses are people like you and I, mm -hmm. right? Like that have had 20 years of experience in single family uh, homes or for lease product. I think there, there's a lot of different ways um, to, to, to invest in, you know, for lease product. And some people um, figure this out sooner than later, but I think scale helps you expand your operating margins. Mm -hmm. So what, you know, for example, if I were buying homes myself in a market that invitation homes or one of the other um, larger operators of homes were buying, my margins are going to be a lot different than these bigger companies who can drive efficiencies into the operating model, right? You can invest in mm -hmm. systems, you can invest in people, you can invest in technologies that make you that much more efficient. By the way, big, you also can drive down your vendor pricing, which can provide a better user experience or, you know, this subscription-based mm -hmm. economy we live in. Anything that we can do and repeat over and over and do better should be able to drive that cost and that value proposition down for a resident. I'll give mm -hmm. you some examples of these in a second. But I think that the, the, the ability to, to create a value proposition that's based on scale is different than most smaller investors have the ability you know, to do. Now, 
smaller investors can be more nimble, right? Like you could buy five homes in a market over two years and sell those homes five years later and recycle your capital to a different market. Um, it's just a different strategy. Whereas, you know, we may try to buy 5,000 homes over 10 years in a market, and we will believe in a long methodical approach where we can create margin expansion and, and a better revenue profile over the long haul that our shareholders seem to really like. And so mm -hmm. it's just, it's, it's not that one's right or wrong. It's just your approach, your perspective. We're, we are investors in the long term. We want to yeah. drive up community values, improve properties over the long term, continue to reinvest in those communities because we just believe that that's a longer you know, value play and, and that, that revenue stream is going to be much more predictable over time. Yeah, you just you make a really good point about uh, the media and and jealous, maybe jealous mom and pop investors would say, well, you know, what's Wall Street doing in our space? But you're right, it's the people, the real operators are the uh, the people have been doing it for a long time. Just it may be Wall Street money, but yeah, same point. operators. <laughs> hey, we're all we're all kind of wired the same in this space. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right. So last year was maybe a year not too many of us or anybody could have quite predicted. Uh, what were you guys saying in your boardrooms in March of 2020? And did things pan out the way you thought they would? That's a great question. I mean, as, as the pandemic started to set in, our business specifically at 80,000 homes was, I think we were about 97, 97.5% occupied. So we had really healthy occupancy pre-pandemic. Um, but there was a, certainly a bunch of unknowns. I mean, mm -hmm. nobody knew. Well, first of all, we didn't quite understand the coronavirus. Nobody knew exactly what it was, right. how it was going to behave. Would vaccines be as developed as, as hopefully as quickly as people were hoping? Um, and I think very quickly what we figured out and we took, we knew we were going to have to be there for our residents. We were going to have a lot of residents impacted. And so we credit, the first thing we did was actually set up programs for communication and also uh, the ability for our residents to go on structures with us where they could catch up on payments later mm -hmm. for those that were impacted. If you had hardship, we were going to work with you. And I think just having that very quickly in our book of business, and we were communicating with our residents like every week with you know, massive communication campaigns to let them know, hey, A, we're here. B, this is where you go. We want to know what's going on so that we can help. That just helped, I think, lower the temperature of the, mm -hmm. we're all afraid of like the unknown, right? Yeah. Um, and then the second piece was, we didn't understand what the market dynamics were going to necessarily do. We were going into the summer. So that typically tends to be, you know, it was March, April when the pandemic really started to kind of come into the country. We didn't know if, if that was going to stunt home ownership or, you know, cause people to not want to lease or, and, and I think what we didn't initially uh, instinctively understand, but we figured it out very quickly within the first four to eight weeks was that people were now much more likely to renew a lease and stay put because of the uncertainty. And so we saw our retention rates, which are normally really high around 70% go up, you know, four five, six, seven percentage points in the summer. And so we, we, we very quickly, and we, we were really careful. Like we weren't raising rate those first few months. Like we were just we were trying to pay attention to what was happening in the marketplace, but just nobody knew. And um, when we started to get comfortable around the cadence of communication with our residents, and I think more importantly, two or three months into the pandemic, so you get like kind of middle end of summer, we, we were seeing accelerated demand for mm -hmm. or lease product. And so 
as we were, we, we survey 50, 60,000 times a year. And our surveys were telling us that the fundamentals in our business were very consistent with how we would normally anticipate them with a couple of key categories. One, people were looking for more space because of the work from home component. So we saw additional demand there. And then on our renewals, we definitely were seeing people tell us that they were delaying decisions like home ownership or movement because of X, Y, or Z or job relocation. They told them, you know, stand pat for the time being. So um, I think our customers got a little bit naturally stickier. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was, that took us a couple months to play out. But when everything was going on, I mean, we had the same concerns every home builder did and everyone else. It was just like, what does this mean? I mean, yeah. our defenses and be ready. Yeah. Some of us with uh, 10 or 20 properties were freaking out, but I can't imagine, uh, you know, 10, <laughs> hundreds of thousands, right? Some markets, you know, um, set up different rules than other markets. Uh, right. There's some markets that are even harder to operate in right now than perhaps others that have kind of come back online and gotten more market um, driven, more regular. So, yeah, I mean, well, that was certainly a lesson for us. We've been investing in in uh, business friendly states anyway. Um, I, I know that a lot of the the institutional funds have been in 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 states that maybe are less business friendly, less landlord friendly, like California. I mean, is that is would you be are you in California? And if not, or I mean, yeah, what's, what's the situation? Has anything changed there for you? Well, we have, we have um, today, I think r- roughly around 12 and a half thousand homes in California, okay. nearly 20% of our revenue comes out of that state. And there's a lot of reasons why we love California. Mm-hmm. You're right. The, the, the judicial challenges there are kind of frequent and there's always a, a narrative around something else housing related. Mm-hmm. It's a great market. And we actually, um, they passed a law last year on the renewal side of the business um, that you're capped at 5% plus CPI on renewals. So it's not like I would say normal market environment there on renewals, but mm-hmm. on the new leases, you can generally reset to market rents. And um, yeah, there's definitely been some judicial, not judicial, legislative and judicial challenges in some of these markets that aren't as landlord friendly. Um, and, but it, you know, in part, you really want to do the right thing too especially for the first while, like really the first year. Now I think it's getting to a point where a lot of landlords and some of those markets are getting pretty frustrated because um, economies are coming back online, rules you know, are softening um, and landlord tenant laws aren't kind of regulating normally. Mm-hmm. And that makes it really hard. It's much harder for smaller landlords than it would be for us because we have resources. We have really good communication platforms. We can talk to residents. But I, I do hear a lot of difficult stories from small landlords that are like, I can't do anything and I've got a mortgage to pay. And, you know, that's tricky. And I think states need to be really sensitive to that. Um, and they got to work with property owners to keep property rights intact as we come out of this thing so that, um, you know, market uh, normalized markets are better markets for everybody, generally speaking. Um, there's always, you know, issues on the edges, but you want a market that has normal supply and demand fundamentals. It's harder to manage it, navigate it, invest in it, operate in it, whatever for both, you know, investors and also the state. So um, I think you'll start to see some of these states start to normalize as these moratoriums wind down. Mm -hmm. And that kind of brings me to uh, something that you've been involved in the national rental home council. And I know there it, it's a there's an industry leader conference coming up. I think you were involved in the formation of that, or or not? Yeah, you know about 
it was probably eight or nine years ago as we were rolling out and we knew that we were going to, with Invitation Homes, really try to build scale. We very quickly tried to find our half a dozen other companies in the space that were you know, growing and trying to, to do this uh, to start to form a trade association so we could talk about how to help you know, with regulatory agencies, uh, standardize um, ways of thinking, right? Um, mm -hmm. How do we, you know, we're better together, just like the multifamily groups have done. I think landlords, both small and large on the single family side um, are better to get together and talk about the issues and to try to help solve problems together, both from a, how do you operate this business the most effective way, but also how do you create more affordable housing options in the markets where we operate? And I think today we've got, I don't know what the exact number is, but it's probably close to well over a hundred different operators that are part of the national, we're, we're encouraging all small landlords to join. Um, I think there's, they've also got structures that are really relatively uh, affordable for smaller landlords to be part of that. And I know that over time and distance, we're going to start to make things available um, to all owners of real estate, whether it's, you know, what's a proper lease I can use in these markets? Where are my resources mm -hmm. for HOA challenges. How do I think about kind of all this stuff? And, and I think the NRHC, by banding together both small and large, can create a, and make a lot of this um, available to, you know, the 16 million single family rental units that are out there. So um, it's a good industry. It's, it's got a voice in Washington. It's got a voice at some of the state levels. We work with California all the time and the governor's office there to try to talk about housing related opportunities and areas where we can work together. And, and, um, I think uh, David Howard, who runs that, has done an excellent job um, of continually kind of galvanizing and bringing more people to the table so that we can, the, the goal is to solve housing needs in an affordable way and have them be great businesses for people uh, and part of their own retirement plans, right, over time. So um, mm -hmm. I think there's big opportunities there for, for folks to join. I, I'm really excited about what you guys are doing and bringing to the table. And really, it's helping solve issues for the mom and pops too, totally. which I think is what happened in the beginning in the early days too, where, uh, you know, the Wall Street money had more money to be able to create systems that now we can all use. Um, I, I think it's, I don't know where I heard this, but 8 million mom and pop landlords own one rental property, you know, so a lot of people kind of just trying to do their best, but there wasn't a network. So, or anyone really um, negotiated negotiating on our behalf. So yeah. I love what you guys are doing and I'm excited to be a part of it. So when is that conference and how can people sign uh, We'll have our, our um, we just did our, finished our virtual conference last month. There'll be another one in the fall in October. And I'll make sure Christy gets you guys for your podcast, all the information on NRHC. It, okay. it, it's a very nonpartisan, like just awesome organization that's trying to promote landlord tenant rights and property rights and just making sure that we have um, really good broad discussion across both sides of the aisle on where housing shortages and needs are and how mom and pop landlords and, and even bigger landlords like ourselves are stepping in to fill that need. And how do we make sure that we're all talking about the commercial points that matter, right? And mm -hmm. both, um, you know, whether you're an investor or a legislator or whatever. So it, it's been, it's been a, a really good forum so far and the industry's young, but it'll continue to grow. I would expect like, you know, all the other strong housing uh, associations that are out there. Absolutely. I mean, just in the last 10 years, and I, and I don't know if all the credit goes to the institutional uh, investors, but it just seems like things have changed so much for the better already in 10 years. When, when I started, you know, 20 years ago, it, it was so difficult to find a good property manager. It was usually, again, a mom and pop, uh, some local broker that 
didn't really know the regulations of the area. Right. And, you know, things have changed a lot and it, I think it's going to continue to get better. I think it was well said. I mean, I, I think, you know, anytime more capital comes into a category, you're going to find that even like the appendage businesses and ancillary companies that help support industries get better and you see mm -hmm. more innovation. And I think, you know, single family for lease housing has been around for hundreds of years with basically zero to little innovation around it. Yeah. And so the softwares, the ancillary services, the, the ability to have better customer service profiles for the smaller landlord, like all of that is going to continue to evolve as the industry gets more and more um, capital coming to it and the eyes that are on it, right? Like just this discussion, having real discussions around these kind of businesses create a bunch of positive thinking for other entrepreneurs that are going to help build products and services that will help support the industry. Absolutely. Again, we would watch you guys and think, well, how are you going to do this? It's so hard to manage contractors if, they, if they're doing your own house <laughs> or the house next door. Yeah, it is how hard. are you guys going to manage that? And, and I, I, I mean, it's a big question, right? But you've created more systems to make even that more manageable, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, you think about the law large numbers with our business, it's really interesting. So 80,000 homes, and we'll generally probably have 25,000 of those homes a year that will cycle out. Someone will move out and somebody will move in. So just think about like turning 2,000 homes a month when you work with different vendors and leasing teams and everything else. And then you think about, okay, when you're in our home, it doesn't stop there. Like we're in your home every six months doing routine inspections, you know, offering upgrades, doing all this kind of stuff that provide a better experience for you as the resident. And then, you know, what are some of the national partnerships we can create that can also drive down costs for you as somebody that's in a home that plans on staying for three to five years. And so, you know, whether it's our kind of national partnerships with companies like Terminex or our smart home technologies where, you know, everything's on your phone and you can run your thermostat or let people in and out of your house with, you know, an app on your phone, like that just simplifies the experience and it's at our cost, not yours, right? So how do we create more of these kind of win-win type of opportunities for the customer? And if we continue to innovate, it should trickle down. I really believe that. And that these companies that we work with that are going, wait a second, uh, we should be working with all the smaller landlords as well. There's a big ecosystem here. How do we make it simpler for people that don't just own a hundred or a thousand homes how do we make it simple for the person that owns one to five to 10, right? And mm -hmm. that's what you're starting to see. And a lot of the vendors back to the NRHC, and our trade, they're all joining our trade association because they want access to, to the smaller landlord. They want to know who's there and how can we win your business, right? And how can we make that experience better? So you nailed it. it took a lot of dollars and a lot of thinking on how to kind of start to evolve into a real industry and a real business that can operate different than mom and pops, but the, the industry is continually getting better and better. That's great. Wonderful. Well, Dallas, it's been really a pleasure to have you here. Really an honor. Thank you so much for, for sharing with us. Thanks, Kathy. I appreciate being here and uh, best of luck to all your listeners and in, in their future investment ideas and opportunities. All right. Hope we don't, hope we don't see each other at the same auctions though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right. Take All care. Right.
And thank you for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. If you'd like to get more information on how to own a portfolio of single family homes or one to four units, you can learn so much at our website at realwealthshow.com. We have hundreds of webinars there that you can listen to on your own time. And then also you'll find out about which cities we think have the best potential for cash flow and appreciation over the next decade. There's a drop down under the invest tab. Again, you can check that out at realwealthshow.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to realwealthshow.com.